Good morning, church family. That's all. Man, I just wanted to keep singing. Did you, did you get that? So I, could, I sat there and I stopped singing for a minute. And I could hear everybody else singing. I was like, hey, this was just, what a great service this morning, huh? Um, good job to the worship team. You guys are great. Um, I wanted to mention something. You may have noticed that we've been doing something a little weird. Um, we, each week, we've been lighting a new candle starting on the first week of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. There are four Sundays in Advent, and there's a wreath and candles there. And uh, there's some symbolism there. Um, So I wanted to share some of that symbolism, because sometimes, you know, we just, we talk, and we have words, and we have explanations. But sometimes the visual, there's just something special about it. So I want to share that for just a second before we get into the text. The wreath is a continuous circle that represents eternal life. Kind of like when we wear a ring uh, representing unending love for each other when we're married, right? The wreath represents eternal life with Christ, which Christ gives us. And the first candle, so the candles are purple. It's a color that represents Advent. And the first candle is uh, the, it symbolizes hope, and some call it actually the prophecy candle to remember the prophets who foretold about the birth of Christ, and it, it represents the expectation and anticipation of Messiah. So remember the first week of Advent looks ahead at the second coming. So that's the first one. The second one represents faith. It's called the Bethlehem candle, and it's a reminder of Joseph and Mary's journey. Uh, the third candle is sometimes uh, usually pink, uh, like a rose, because a rose symbolizes joy, and it can be called the shepherd's candle. And so the third Sunday of Advent is often called Godet Sunday. It's meant to remind us of the joy that the world experiences because of the birth of Jesus. And then the fourth week, we light the final purple candle, which represents peace. It's called the angel's candle because it was the angels who proclaimed peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And so they all have kind of different pieces of the story integrated in them, and it's kind of a cool visual. But then on Christmas Eve, we light the the one there kind of in the center, uh, the tall one, the white candle. It's called the Christ candle. And it represents the life of Christ. And the color is white because it signifies purity, because Christ is our pure and sinless Savior. So we will uh, light that when we light our candles at our candlelight Christmas Eve service. It's just going to be a special time. I ask that you would please come because we're going to look at some, we're going to look at some symbolism today uh, with the birth of Jesus, but that symbolism goes even further, and we're going to see that on Christmas Eve on Friday. So uh, please join us. Uh, The services are at uh, 5 and 6.30, and 6.30, right? 6 o'clock. 4.30 and 6, I get them mixed up. 4.30 and 6 o'clock. Thank you for your help. Um, I'm the pastor here. I should know these things. But I, um, but 4.30 and I just show up and do my job. <laughs> I don't have the brain power for the rest. No. Um, yeah, you guys, uh, I really want to encourage you to come. It's just going to be a really special time. And uh, you know, maybe bring some people from the community and bring your families. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you're going to be down the hill with your uh, 
with your families. Uh, the service will be live streamed. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Tim, do you know if we're going to live stream both services or just second, the second one? You have no idea? <laughs> one of the services, at least, maybe both, will be live streamed on Friday. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And when all went to be registered, each to his own. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, or to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Our holy and gracious God, we thank you for gathering us together in your name this morning. Lord, grant to us that we might hear your voice as your word is read and taught. We ask this morning that you might encourage us in our worship and devotion to you and convict us of our sin, rebellion, and corrupt attitudes. Grant repentance to us and cause contrition to guide our love and adoration for you and your glorious image bearers around us. Let us see the beauty of those you have created to bear your image. Thank you for sending Jesus into our broken and corrupted place as one of us to dwell with us, to suffer and to die in our place. We thank you for his grace and his mercy toward us while we were yet sinners. We humbly now submit our hearts and our minds, our attention to you, our good, gracious, and holy God, as we open your holy word this morning to learn from you, to know you, to know Jesus through what you have given us to know you by. We give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to begin with a true story about a Turkish monk who loved Jesus a really long time ago. I think he still loves Jesus, I'm guessing. Um, he was raised by a wealthy uncle. He decided, though, to abandon the luxuries of that wealth to live as a monk and to serve God. In fact, we believe that he even served in a monastery above Bethlehem for a time. But, but this man was a, he was a sacrificial servant of God. And so at one period, he heard that a man in his community had lost everything and was so broke that he could not afford to feed his family or his daughters. And so he had begun to consider using them for income. He was devastated at the thought of allowing such vile things to happen to his daughters. And so this monk heard this story and disguised himself and stealthily snuck up to this man's window in the middle of the night and threw in a bag of gold coins. Well, this continued for some time and the man wanted to know who this anonymous gift giver was so the man hid one night 
and caught the generous monk in the act. Now, the secret gift giver was a monk by the name of Nicholas of Myra. Startled, Nicholas B. begged the man not to ever say anything about it. Nicholas eventually became a bishop and uh, was called to the Council of Nicaea rather, in A.D. 325. So you see this is a very long time ago. Uh, now that, that council was called because there was a man, a, a bishop or priest by the name of Arius who had begun going around teaching that Jesus was not eternal God, but the first and greatest creation of God. We should all go, <gasps> like, right? This is a shock. This is terrifying. And so was Arius. Look at that guy. Wow. Right? And, and so um, the emperor Constantine uh, had become a Christian. He had formally ended persecution of the church and made Christianity the formal religion of the empire. But he was not a theologian and he bought into Arius's heresy. Consequently, there were priests and bishops who rejected Arianism and were tossed into jail and abused in other ways. But then eventually Constantine began to see the problem and asked bishops worldwide to convene and settle the matter. Well, settling the matter was not quite, well, it wasn't difficult. I mean, seriously. It's just about as simple as turning it to John chapter 1, like you're going to do right now. Turn to John chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see that that passage places Jesus before Genesis 1.1. Let's look at it. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, rather, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we see, starts with, in the beginning, God created, and we see that this is placed before that where all that was made was made by Christ. Now the construction here doesn't lend itself to the idea that the Father created the Son who then created everything else. It doesn't work that way. If you ever de debated a Jehovah's Witness, you'll know that they try to argue that based on this Arian pre presupposition they had. Um, just show them a picture of Arius. They, you know, no. But um, it simply doesn't work. It's just circular reasoning. You have, they, this is what they argue. They say you have to put an indefinite article, A, right? You have to put an indefinite article there to read Jesus was a God in John 1.1 1, 1, because Jesus is an eternal God. And we know that Jesus is an eternal God because John 1.1 1, 1 should read the word was a God. See the circular reasoning there, right? How do you even argue with that? You're like, you just went in circles. Arianism was immediately rejected universally by all the bishops, except like Arius and maybe one other guy. And so, um, and there were hundreds of bishops there. And, but then they took some time to develop a, a statement. They searched the scriptures to try to develop a clear statement affirming the biblical truth that the Son of God is indeed eternal God. And you may have actually read it at one time. It's called the Nicene Creed. Um, some churches actually read it in their churches. Now, Nicholas was a stalwart theologian. He was deeply passionate about the identity and character of God. So at the Council of Nicaea, somebody points Arius out to him. They're like, hey, hey, hey Nick. Um, hey, Nick, 
check that dude out way down the other end of the hall there. See that dude? Looks like, what, the one with the funny hat? Well, Nick, they all have funny hats. Well, the pudgy, funny-looking one, see? Oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Who's that? That's Arius. Nicholas goes, that's Arius? And the guy says, yeah. And so Nicholas, this, this kind and generous man, lost his cool. He ran through the hall and sucker punched that, Arius, that heretic Arius. Now, it may have just been a slap, like you see here. Um, but I like the MMA version best because it's funnier. So... I can tell some of you do too. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, what we, what we know about the man that we know as St. Nicholas or Santa Claus is that he deeply loved God. He was deeply affected by the mission of Jesus. And it caused him to live a life of selfless and anonymous generosity. Well, sort of anonymous. Evidently, the man who caught him sparing his daughters of the pain of prostitution told somebody. And you know what? I'm kind of glad he did, because that's a fun story, isn't it? Our culture has all but deified Santa Claus, but the reason we even know who he is is because he loved Jesus deeply and responded rightly to Christ's call to love others. He, he isn't well known for being a great theologian, even though he was. He's known for living like Jesus. Nicholas was deeply concerned about theology. He he was deeply in love with Jesus and cared deeply about the character of God and, and, and that God was represented truthfully. But his love of God didn't stop with what he knew about God. It invaded the core of his being and caused him to become the embodiment of anonymous giving and generosity which we know of him today. So every time you see a Santa Claus out there in the mall, go sit, maybe you could sit on Santa's lap and tell him about himself, right? <laughs> That would be fun, right? Get somebody to take cell phone video, see if it goes viral, right? But let, let us be reminded that he points to Jesus, right? In fact, his desire for us would be that thoughts of him would disappear into thoughts of Jesus. That's, that's the whole point of anonymity, right? Like, he must increase and we must decrease. I think Santa liked that one. Everybody knows how much I love the scriptures, right? I mean, I don't think there's a question there. I, they know how much I love who God is and I, and I want to teach people about him and they, they know that I love sound theology and probably talk too much about it, right? But if I'm remembered when I'm gone, am I going to be remembered for that? Or am I going to be rem remembered for how that truth that I love so much has changed me and how I express my love of Jesus with my life. God, let it be the latter. You know, at IBC, we're pretty good at seeking God through the scripture. But how does that affect our lives? There, there's room in our heads for the knowledge of Jesus, but is there room in our hearts for Jesus himself? Is there room at the end? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, to this point in our series, we've been seeing that We've been seeing Christ proclaim. We've seen the responses uh, of, uh, to the coming Lord. But this week, we are going to see the actual birth. In fact, we're going to celebrate that on Friday. And your families will honor the incarnation the next day as you, as you spend time giving, receiving, and 
contemplating together the meaning of the gift that God has given us, the Messiah, that, that horn of salvation. You'll discuss the significance of our eternal God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. At least I hope you will. I, I, I hope that we will all make room for Jesus on Christmas. This morning, we're going to be looking at the arrival of our Lord. And I pray that we can together grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we may grow in his grace. And that knowing him, we may serve him like Nicholas did. The fourth Sunday of Advent brings with it a theme of love and adoration. Love is a commitment and adoration is an expression of that commitment. I read a story a long time ago. I believe it was in a commentary by Kent Hughes, but I'm almost certain it was in something that Kent Hughes wrote. And he was telling about a young married couple. Uh, couple. The, the lady was in the hospital for some reason. I don't know if she had, uh, I think she had some sort of brain tumor that was operated on. There was something that had happened. Uh, maybe it was a stroke. Um, and she ended up um, looking in the mirror, whatever had happened in that case. She looks at the mirror and and she tried and tried, but could not keep her smile from being crooked. She burst into tears because she just wanted to give her husband a beautiful smile. Well, her husband looked at her tenderly in the eyes. He wiped the tears away and smiled at her affectionately. Said, I think it's kind of cute. See, the wife's desire to be pretty for her husband, what she thought was pretty, was an expression of adoration rooted in her love for her husband. And the husband being attracted to her crooked smile was an expression of his adoration, which was rooted in his love for her. As we look at the birth of Jesus, I want us to be thinking about what it means to adore him as an expression of our love for him. Let's, let's read Luke chapter 2. Keep your finger in there. We'll be in there all morning. Um, Luke 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It could actually read before he was governor of Syria, but we don't know. Luke starts here with some detailed information. He starts with, in those days... That's referring to the period of time after Mary had visited Elizabeth and then left. And then John was born and Jesus would be about six months younger than John. And what we'll see is that all of this happens in a particular time and space. It's not once upon a time in a land far away. Luke gives us the time and the place. So with that, we have a historical and geographical point of reference. We have an apologetic, which is a defense for believing these events. And the details give credibility to the claims. And, and we have a socio-political context, which makes the birth of Jesus a hopeful event for regular people. Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius. Caesar Augustus is who we're talking about here, who, who did this, uh, made this mandate. He was adopted by Julius Caesar and as an heir to his throne. And so when he became Caesar, he was given the name the August One or Augustus, which means the supreme, sublime, majestic one. That was incredibly offensive to the Jews who believed that only God could deserve such a title. 
He built a temple to honor his great uncle, Julius Caesar, by acknowledging his deity. In short, the August one represented everything that would be reprehensible to any faithful Jew, which would include people like Mary and Joseph. But Augustus has mandated that all the world, or literally the inhabited world, be registered with the Roman government. And the usage of that term referred to all those who are in the Roman Empire. John Calvin said this, Augustus orders a census to be conducted in Judea, and each person to give his or her name, that they might afterwards pay an annual tax, which they were formerly accustomed to pay to God. Thus, an ungodly man seizes and carries off what God is accustomed to collect from his people. In fact, or rather, it was in effect, just as if he had prohibited the Jews from choosing for themselves to be considered the people of God. This is important because there was a political context that Jesus was born into. It wasn't a cute little precious moment's nativity far, far out in this little oasis in the middle of the desert, far from the concerns of the world. Jesus was born into a mess. He was born into similar political divisions that we are familiar with today. These are, these are real people in, in real places, in real history, with real problems and real arguments and real fights. Verse 3, Luke 2, verse 3. And all went to be registered in his own town. This is because genealogies were very important to the Jews. Joseph had to go to the city of David because he was descended from David. Luke was certain to enforce that, to affirm the credentials uh, of Jesus as the promised Messiah. Jeremiah 23. In fact, why don't you turn to Jeremiah 23 and also put your finger in Micah 2. These are very, two very important uh, prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Furthermore, this little town of Bethlehem is the place that he was prophesied to be born in. Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient Days. And so we see that this prophesies both his first and second coming and where he comes from. He's in the line of David. He's born in Bethlehem. This is before we even get to the New Testament. Keep in mind the Jews are looking to be delivered from Roman rule and to be a nation of their own. And the Maccabean revolt attempted to do that, but it failed. And that's what they were looking for. For Messiah to accomplish. So here Jesus is entering the context of expanding government control from a government they did not agree with. Everyone had to be registered with Rome, specifically for taxation purposes, but, but this was ultimately about control. Verse 4, Luke 
chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, Octavian became Caesar Augustus after Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. Now, some of you may remember learning about Pax Romana in school. It means the Roman peace. And the idea was to keep people unified by, they would kind of acknowledge their national and cultural and religious identities, but they would use propaganda to build allegiance to Rome and to promote allegiance by convincing them that prosperity and peace that they could have is better than what they could achieve from being independent and fighting, uh, you know, individual risky wars. Um, and so to be faithful to Rome was the key to this and would bring world peace. One of the ways of doing this was to attempt to bring all world religions under the influence and authority of a one world religion. So this confession that they had, Caesar is Lord, was not so much that the Caesars believed themselves to be actual gods, but as a mantra to bring all worldviews under one unified umbrella. Now, some of them did have that, uh, where they believed them to be at least picked out and some connection to God that other people didn't have. But, 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 but this, this, this confession, Caesar is Lord, was in their minds for the good of the people. And that's why later when the Christians refused to repeat Caesar's Lord, they were considered a threat it, it, because it really was a threat to Pax Romana, right? Pax Romana actually originates with Augustus and it's sometimes even called Pax Augusta. Think about it. If you have all the people groups unified under one governing religion or body, you can offer a very high level of peace and security that's good both socially and economically for them. So their government mandates were all rooted in those ideas. And so, and when the Christians would confess Jesus as Lord, it was a refutation of Caesar's Lord. This guy would say Caesar is Lord and the Christian would say Jesus is Lord. So we begin, because it's a threat, seeing pockets of persecution. It's not universal at the time. Eventually, though, it's widespread enough that eventually all the apostles were martyred except John. He fared way better. He... He, they only boiled him in oil and then banished him to, the, to an island of uh, Patmos, an island of criminals. So that's way better than uh, martyrdom, I guess. Uh, but the mantra, Caesar is Lord, it, it was for the greater good in their minds. We can be pretty certain that Joseph never confessed that Caesar is Lord. But he did obey the mandate to register with the Roman government. Now, like it or not, Joseph obeyed a government mandate that as a faithful Jew, he would most likely abhor. He was against this mandate. Um, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would liberate Israel from Rome. And Joseph was in the middle of all of it because his fiancee Mary was pregnant with Messiah. It's poor Joseph. Like, can, you, can you imagine? God, I didn't, I didn't ask for this, God. Can you imagine? He's like, can I just hide? We need to be careful um, about all of this because we can relate 
I think we can all relate a bit to the social tension that's taking place, but it really isn't a, a parallel situation to our own either, right? I mean, there was different um, rules, different freedoms, different government systems, um, different cultures. There's, there's a lot different there, but nevertheless, the reason for the census was ultimately control of the people. Now, I want you to notice something very important here. Just because the Bible records something doesn't always imply that God's stamp of approval is on it. Right? Sometimes it's just, this is what happened. And we're left to decide. We, we have to search the scriptures. We have to search our moral compass and, and say, I wonder what I would have done in that situation. So here's the thing. Did Joseph do the right thing to obey an oppressive mandate that robs God of honor from an evil dictator? What's the Bible say? Remember, he also fled government mandates before they could find and kill Jesus, and he likely never confessed Caesar as Lord. So who here wants to judge Joseph? Any takers? Anybody want to judge Joseph? Nobody? But we're doing it to each other every day. What's wrong with us? I'm serious. I can't tell you how many times I see attacks from every angle. Just because you're not using names doesn't mean you're not pointing fingers. And it's coming from every side. Guys, quit posting memes comparing getting a vaccine and wearing a mask to following Hitler blindly. And quit posting memes shaming and insulting the intelligence of unvaccinated people. You're not going to shame and insult people into changing their opinion and you're being purposefully offensive. It's pride and it's slander. You know exactly what you're doing and it doesn't honor God. until we're ready to lecture Joseph on how he should have handled his situations, we need to bow out of some of these arguments. And, and listen, I'm not the kind of pastor who's, who's prone to scolding people, but I am done. I'm so done with seeing the bride of Christ soil herself. I've seen Christians whose lives should be marked by love attacking one another over something nobody has been able to make a clear, consistent, and exegetical biblical statement about. I think, I think really the only consistent biblical response that I can find at this point comes from a few passages here. Two in 1 Corinthians and one in Colossians. So go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Jump over a chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if 
one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you are called one body and be thankful. The evangelical church in the West today, we, we have trouble. We have trouble with those things. And until we can figure out these principles, we have no right to point our fingers at our brothers and sisters. They're not our opponents. There's a real enemy out there and we're helping him win. God chose Joseph. And, and, and however this played out, Mary was going to give birth in Bethlehem. We can't thwart the purposes of God. And God can use our actions for his glory, whether we are right or wrong in them. And he can do that for our brothers and sisters too. Why are we fighting? Now I want to move on from that. <laughs> and I want to address an issue that we face kind of coming from the academic world. We live in the, we live in the information age. And, and you may find arguments from scholars who will bring doubt to this entire account in Luke. There are some scholars who dismiss the entire account because we don't have historical records of everything that we read here. What they fail to recognize is that Luke is a historical record. It's not simply a religious book that relies on outside history to affirm it. It's, Luke's a historian. And, and, and today when a historian looks at an ancient manuscript, it's generally considered reliable unless it contains something we know to be false. So not only is there nothing in Luke that contradicts other known history, but much of what's written can be proven. So Luke is a historical manuscript that based on the best information we have should be one of the primary manuscripts we use to measure other historical manuscripts against. And the same holds true for Acts. There's an argument that because the books of the New Testament are religious works, they each must be considered suspect until proven true. Here's a real argument. Because the Bible assumes that there's an eternal, invisible God, it must be considered a work of fiction since we know that there is no internal, invisible God. Circular reasoning much? Come on. First off, virtually every manuscript of that period had some sort of religious assumption or background. Like... And the reality is that any informed person who's dismissive of Luke has chosen to be dismissive of Luke because they don't want to believe it, not because they have any tangible reason not to. So in verse 5, Joseph is presented as a, as a pretty good guy here. I have so much respect for this guy. I couldn't do it. Like, we don't believe there's any reason for women to have been registered for taxation, and the narrative doesn't say that Mary ha had to come. So, if, you know, and women who, I don't, I'm not quite sure about women who weren't married. Most younger women would have been. Um, but if a woman's married, and remember betrothal would have been that kind of same uh, commitment legally, um, even though there's not a physical um, relationship yet, it would have been her husband's responsibility to deal with taxes or such mandates. But here Joseph takes a very pregnant Mary um, with him, presumably because she didn't want to uh, want her to be without him when she gave birth. If you have traveled with a very pregnant 
woman, or if you've been a very pregnant woman who's traveled, you know that's not an easy tax. And they were on foot. So that's crazy. I mean, maybe they had a donkey, but still. In the midst of all this, here's the thing. Joseph, Joseph wants to be with her when she gives birth. And in the midst, Joseph's probably very conflicted here. He, he probably didn't want to comply with Rome, but was concerned that if he didn't lay down his personal rights, that he would end up in trouble, which could have consequences for Mary and Jesus. So go to verse 6, Luke chapter 2, verse 6. We're going we're gonna to close up our section today, Luke, six and se- Luke 2, 6 and 7, rather. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. Now, some of you know the word eschatology. simply means the study of the end times. And we often, often think, think of our eschatology as a study of the future because it's not complete yet, right? But our eschatology actually starts right here. It's, it begins right here. Read what Paul said in Galatians. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now as heirs, as image bearers, we get to participate in God's redemptive plan that began a new age with the birth of Jesus. And we do this, we can do this because we have a personal relationship with God. Jesus calls uh, Mary's firstborn here, or Jesus is called rather Mary's firstborn here. Martin Butcher said, the same one who here, who is here called the first begotten is also called the first begotten over all creatures. So the birth of Jesus marks a new beginning for all of creation. We, we tend to kind of sanitize the story with our cute little nativity scenes. Like how is it, how is it that Mary looks like a white girl who did, she was, she was Jewish, but somehow she looks like a white girl who did that whole post-birth professional photo shoot. Like, this is a real thing. Did you know this? People do that, like in the hospital or the bathtub or whatever they're doing. And I think the most intimate moment with your new child and the father, photographer's like, hey, wipe that off so I can get some pictures. <laughs> and then, listen, I'm not knocking you if you're into that. I just, I just don't, I don't. Get it? Like, can you imagine? Like, you've got the doctor, and you've got mom giving birth, and dad. You've got a nurse, maybe the maybe the mother-in-law, who knows, and the photographer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, whatever, whatever suits you, I guess. But there's, there's. Here's the thing. There's no running water outside of the inn for this, right? What, what, whatever they had to clean baby Jesus up the animals had been drinking from. They're dirty animals. They, they poop. <laughs> like, and, and then they laid Jesus in a feed trough. Like, have you ever seen a horse or donkey eat? Like, laying a baby, that, laying a baby in that is just gross, right? R.C. Sprawl puts it this way. The entrance of Jesus into the world is against the backdrop of humiliation. A cloak of shame and reproach is spread across 
the infant who is wrapped in rough bandage-like strips of cloth and placed either in a niche of a rock used as a feeding trough or in a crude cradle. Humiliation began his entrance in the world and ended in his exit from the world. The Son of God comes from a place in eternity that is perfect. He creates the world in a perfect state. We destroy God's creation. He comes to restore creation and we stick him in a horse's food dish. That, that's who we are. And yet he continued in a human state, loving, broken, and messed up people until we finally killed him. And then he raises himself from the dead and we have the promise of salvation because he loves us. That's who he is. Hmm. What kind of entrance did Jesus deserve? Right? What kind did he deserve? Now let's contract with that, contrast that with what kind he actually got. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him, this is Isaiah 53 starting in verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You know, even when we celebrate the entrance, his entrance into Jerusalem that we traditionally celebrate on Palm Sunday. That's where the people went out of the city and they laid their coats and their palm branches down to usher him into the city as a king would be. Those accolades were short-lived. Less than a week later, they were calling for his death. And you know what? There's still no room for him at the inn. There's no room. We so often just look to Jesus to fill some perceived spiritual or emotional need, like spiritual consumers. And then when he doesn't meet those needs, oh, we don't discard him entirely. We just kind of set him aside. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church sometimes. There's no room for him because we're busy. We had so much going on down the hill. Just I just need time to sleep in. Watch the service after, after uh, you know, we'll watch the, the service on YouTube, you know, after football. You know, maybe I'll, I'll start doing my, my daily Bible reading when this big project is done. I, it's, I just, it's just busy right now. As soon as we move into that house where there's room for me to find a quiet spot to read, I just can't concentrate right now on Jesus. Maybe, and then the kids' sports are out. It's busy. We've got to drive them all around. It's just so busy. But when this kid's sports are I'm busy. My, my plate's full. There's, there's no vacancy. There's, there's just no room for Jesus just yet. And we're all busy. We have a lot going on in our lives. And there's no room for Jesus because we aren't willing to go to him for everything. We aren't willing to go for him, to him for answers on viruses and sexuality and politics, finances and education. 
Let's face it. You think that I'm exaggerating here. Let's face it. How many of us, when faced with questions about vaccines and masks, spend as much time reading and contemplating the scriptures as we did on YouTube or Facebook or reading articles or listening to podcasts or watching the news or posting memes? If you want to know why we're so divided, that's why. If we would only go to the source of all truth, our Lord, through what he has given us to know him by, the Bible, we would not see the bride of Christ scratching her own eyes out. There's still no room for Jesus at the end. This world has no space for Jesus. But is there room for Jesus here at IBC? Will we set aside our disagreements and our anger and our opinions, even our knowledge, so that we can make room for our king and give him a reception of love and adoration that he deserves together? Can we set our needs and our passions aside so that there is room for Jesus to take the central role in our lives? Listen, IBC family, I, I believe that we're doing a pretty good job relative to much of the, East, or the Western uh, church. But we're still a mess, aren't we? Like if we're not animals, we, we sure act like it sometimes. Like I don't, I don't dare compare myself to Mary or to Joseph or even to the shepherds. At best, I'm the filthy donkey who left a mess for Jesus to lay in. We fight and we make awful noises at each other. And there's poop and we smell bad. But Jesus came and he was laid in our mess that he might cleanse us. R.C. Sprawl said this, at the very moment the babe is wrapped in the cloth of humiliation, God is not satisfied that the circumstances of the son's birth be only humiliation. God desired that shame be balanced with glory and exaltation. And we're going to see that next week with the shepherds. But will we prepare him room? Will we see him in the midst of our mess and fall before him in love and adoration? So, so how do we love and adore Jesus? What does it look like to adore Jesus? Picture what that might look like. And then do it to the people around you, particularly those that you have trouble with. Because that's what it looks like to adore Jesus. Can we humble ourselves like Jesus did? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you might be his, you rather by his poverty might become rich. And listen to this. When did he do all of this for us? At what time? Did he do this for us? Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against him, while we were still his enemy, Christ died for us. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25? We read about that the first week of Advent. Matthew 25, verse 40 says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, 
you did it to me. Can we lay ourselves down for one another that we might demonstrate true love and adoration for Jesus? Let's pray. Holy Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your only Son, your Holy Son, from his heavenly throne into our broken world. We ask your will be done on heaven and earth and that we would submit to that will. God, provide for us our every need and redeem those relationships that we have to your glory. Make us people of love, sacrifice, and forgiveness that we may forgive receive the forgiveness that you have given us. God, thank you for your fulfilled promise of the incarnation and your reliable coming promise of the return of our King. Make us ready, God, to reign with Jesus in his kingdom. And yet help us live redemptively as long as our mission remains here and now. Lord, let us, res uh, let us express our love and adoration for Jesus by loving and adoring every person we face in this world. And so God, we offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise as we enter our week, we enter our mission field in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.